John, we have a new guest this morning. We have. And uh, a man who has been exceptionally busy over the last six or eight months or a year. And I think we're lucky to have him this morning. Um, I gathered off off Radio Jim, uh, the poor man who was sitting in front of us has had a, a, a sleepless night. A torrid night. A tor- is that what you call it? <laughs> a torrid night, yeah. Dr. Tomás Machanmara, to fear false wrath, imagine in you. Yeah. I suppose in case people think that you were out calibrating last night, I can make it very clear. I had a four-year-old girl disturb my sleep last night. For <laughs> She arrived into me at four o'clock and insisted on staying there until yeah. until morning. And I, be, I bet you she's fast asleep oh, now. She's, she? she's very comfortable now, you can be sure of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's, all good. it's all good. Tomas, it's been an interesting year for you, just mm-hmm. reflecting on it, okay? Very busy. Yeah. Got the Scarf Martyrs finished, and okay. How is the how how is that going in terms it's, of the the sale of it? And yeah, it's going very, very well, John. Thankfully I don't have anything to do with that technically. The the publishers deal with all that side of it, but the sales are very, very good. Um and for me the feedback has been very, very positive. It is. And that's the most important thing for me that people, particularly locally, yeah. have responded really positively to the book and one of the most rewarding things is that a lot of people have been reading it that wouldn't traditionally read history books. Uh, and that's something, in a general sense, in my involvement in heritage, yeah. has been important to, to expand the number of people who are interested. Tomás, the, the, anybody who has read the book will, will realise there's a fierce amount of, apart from this other ele- sub-elements in it, there's a fierce amount of drama. Okay, It invites the consideration of a, uh, a, a mini-film. Mm-hmm. Would you yeah, agree? I would certainly, and again, that's been mentioned many Our times. Doc. I mean, there there are the elements that would make a very good, uh, yeah. you know, film, movie, or or, or or certainly story. Because, um, you know, I suppose, what do you want in in a, in a in a a powerful story is, you know, loads of emotion. Yes. You know, trauma plays. Its and it part. has it all, hasn't it? It has the bravery, the courage. Yeah. You know, yeah. it has the legacy of it. Uh, it has all of that. You know, uh, um, and, and again, there have been many people who've mentioned that, and maybe someday it will, it will catch on. And I would support that because my ambition has always been to expand the yeah. the, the knowledge of. So, the story. can you do anything to actually, apart from sit back and wait for the, the, the populace, you know, to respond? Can you actually do anything to? push it now towards that type of consideration I, I, I presume I could if I had a mind to do that um, I, I suppose you mentioned being busy John and I, I've given 17 years of, of, of attention to the book and I'm not I'm not done with the story but at the same time I suppose you know I, I'm, I'm incredibly busy with my own consultancy and, and, and yeah. business and I suppose there is some what people don't always realize is whatever you're pursuing, you know, be it research or be it trying to promote something, there's a significant amount of time goes into it. Yes. Um, so I, I would think you could possibly, you know, find the levers and, and, and push them, uh, you know, if you had the time to kind of do it. But yeah. Um, but you don't have uh, too much time on your hands at all. Now. I have no time on my hands. What are you doing so that our listeners can uh, maintain yeah. linkage with you? It's a good. It's a good question in the sense that a lot of people think I write history books for a living. And <laughs> 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 for the people who understand the the economy of books, that wouldn't make a very good yeah, yeah. living. But um, no, I, I I I manage the Cork Folklore Project for UCC. The Cork. Uh, the Cork Folklore Project for UCC. Yeah. Uh, so that's a project that's twenty five years in existence. 
documents and documents, folklore, oral history um, and tradition across Cork City and County. Um, that's part of the week. But I have uh, my own consultancy, McInmara Heritage Consultancy, which is, I suppose, probably, you know, more of my time is taken up with that. But I have clients all over the country. Um, what do you do in, in that? Tomorrow? Well, a lot of it is focused on uh, oral history and memory. So I will um, develop oral history projects, for example, with the Irish Defence Forces. I, I've worked in developing an international project for them where they've been documenting the memories of, of people who were in the Congo, the lab. Lebanon, Cyprus, etc. Because that, that experience had never been documented apart from the very dry technical unit histories that have been there previously. And is there much data out there available to, to Well, well the focus is on the, the, the retired soldiers who would have been out there, retired or serving soldiers you know, who would have been out there to sort of try and document the human experience behind the military um, missions. Um, I'm working funnily enough at the moment with, with Angarda Shiakana because they're 100 years old next week and that's I'm right. an advisor to, to an oral history project that, that's um, been going on for the last two years. And then two of the other interesting projects that I've been doing, or the types of projects, Jim, have been um, audits. So in Donegal, for example, and in Cork, uh, we've been auditing memorials associated with the revolutionary period, and in Donegal with, the, with World War I in the county and that brought me into you know orange halls presbyterian churches protestant churches and it's remarkable again you know my fascination with memory yes. and the different forms yes. of memory yes. so you go into a community you go into a church or an orange hall and you establish their relationship with a particular uh, period of time and how it's manifested for them whether it's in you know the the physical memorials whether it's in oral tradition whatever it might be so my job in in that scenario and in Cork is to identify and document all of the memorials that are out there and then pull together all of that data and associated information together into um, a database and, and a narrative around that. It, so. it must be fascinating which say you mentioned the, an orange hall and the orange tradition mm. which wouldn't be your background obviously. No certainly no not that I found it anyway No but I suppose the, the principles are the same in terms of memory and in terms of, of looking back it is exactly and I mean I found it fascinating and you're right I mean I wouldn't have have you know much to empathize with in terms of the orange order but but in that context I was fascinated to go in and meet them and to see how you know what is their connection to their memory and as I said how it manifests and what it means to them and and sometimes you know when you humanize anything you can relate to it you know and you could see within the orange halls I visited a very sincere for them you know connection with with men from that their order usually that 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 were involved in the First World War. So, yeah. you know, I found it fascinating. Now, you, you were recording it? Uh, I was documenting, though, that information. So it's field work. Now, I did do oral interviews as well. And, you know, it's one of the things, I suppose, I would bring to a project. The, the initial tender that, that was, was uh, announced was about a documentation. So going, a document, photograph the memorials and find out the historical information. So when you, when you talk to, um, uh, let us say, Orange, a, a group of Orange orange people um, it may well be the very first time that they have had somebody who from the other side who listened as against to engage I don't know whether you can remember the kind of radio interviews that used to go on in the in the, uh, the during the, the trouble times okay it was very hard to get a listening audience 
if you were yeah you know. well listening I mean hearing and listening are two, two different things I suppose mm. but I, I certainly in, in the in the in the context of those projects and you know on the same day I was in an orange hall in a place called Newtown Cunningham you know I was out in Drumbo where where uh, four Republicans were executed and you know you, you listen and you hear and you try and understand and they're the three fundamental skills in my view of of an oral historian and yeah. if you do that you arrive at a far better understanding of, you know, that original history and its relationship to people later. Whether they be an orange man or, or a Republican, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. You can actually understand what it means to them. And I think that's probably the pathway towards some sort of, you know, better understanding Resolution. across the divide yes. in it, some sense. As part of any long-term, yes, if you like, co- cooperation. You're very interested in the idea. Yeah, what I was going to, I said it to you, Tomás, you know, before that I might ask you, you know, we're we're in recent times we have commemorated the well, the handing over at Dublin Castle there a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know you can debate I suppose as to when the 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 free state started or whatever, but our freedom came. But uh, what are we to learn? Is is what I would ask from that period and from what was done right then, what mistakes were made then, what are we to learn to to do what John is talking about, to move forward to where a kind of a rapprochement, if you like, yeah. that, that we can all live together happily on the island? You see, I think there's yeah. different, you know, communities that have to learn maybe different lessons. And I think, let's just take the state, for example. You mentioned the handing over, you know, which was a seminal moment and there's loads of symbolism with it. But it's it's a beginning in one sense, you know, for, for, for a state that emerged. But it's also the beginning then of an isolation of another people in the north of Ireland within the six counties, you know, because they began another story, you know, which was entirely disconnected from ours. So we opened up into some new form of independence, whereas they didn't. And and there are consequences then for, for both um, realities and both experiences. And they come together then very powerfully because this Sunday we, we, we of course, commemorate the 50th anniversary yes. of Bloody Sunday. And, you know, for, for us to learn and, and all of us, the different communities, to learn, I think you have to put those things together and see, well, what, what did the, the original foundation of the state, what was the motivation for that? What were the mechanisms used to bring that about? And then what were the consequences of uh, the decisions that took place in that day? And we have to be honest with ourselves. Let's just deal with this date. I think we have to be honest with ourselves with regard to what we achieved, what we embraced and enjoyed and what others didn't and, and, and find a relationship between the two. And I'm not saying that we accept responsibility for everything that happened in the north of Ireland. And I say we, I mean the state. But I think we have to accept some responsibility or accept the responsibility that is there for us to accept. Because, you know, the longer we take a position and say, you know, the Republicans caused all the trouble up there or the loyalists caused all the trouble up there. And, uh, you know, present that narrative almost as if we're this, you know, holier than thou. That'd be a traditional kind of approach, really, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I think it's probably, John, a a media reinforced sort of a sentiment as well. You know, there was always this almost this irritation with the trouble that were causing being caused in the north. And they're bringing their troubles down here. But I mean, it, it, it never made sense to me because... You know, we know that the, the, the bullets that were fired down here in East Clare did as much damage as bullets that were fired above in Derry, you know, and, and we, we, we celebrate the bullets that were fired down here 
and we condemn the bullets that were fired up there. Now, that, that might mm. be, you know, some people might say that's a simplistic narrative, but if we're trying to bring about an understanding, then um, I think we, we, we have to maybe sometimes deal with that simplicity of experience mm. and, and try and, and find some uh, relationship with that and, and, and an understanding. And ultimately, for me, everything comes down to an understanding. Mm. And to understand, you have to listen, of course. And you mentioned, you know, that, that let's say, nationalists in the six counties were, you know, you can use abandoned or uh, imprisoned or whatever in a state over which they would have no control. And, and you know, I suppose moving down the, the decades to more recent times, you know, I recently finished Susan McKay's book, um, uh, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, definitely there is an element within, let's say, unionism that they feel abandoned. Mm-hmm. I suppose British political expediency and everything else would have would have brought that. But they certainly would feel abandoned as well in, 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 a, in their own fashion. No doubt about that. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's really, really difficult because... Um, you know, it, 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 I'm always careful to try and, I suppose, tell someone else how to think, you know. And when you're dealing with the unionist population, you, there's an otherness, you know, to it. Yeah. And you're, you're, you have to surrender to some degree that, that, that that's their experience and you have no ownership of it. But at the same time, I suppose, we have to be honest and straightforward as well in this overall conversation and to, to, to pick apart, you know, what was that what, what is the union? What was the union? You know, was the union only, uh, and I mean, when I say union, the unionist sort of connection to that, was it only one a one-sided um, connection? And we know that there were, you know, many examples throughout modern Irish history where, um, you know, the, 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 the apparent divide between the nationalist and the unionist was transcended. Michael Davitt did it effectively. There was plenty of times where the common ground was, self-evident between nationalists and unionists and it's based on a reality um, of you know living in the one island it's based on the practical reality of the economic benefit it's also based i think on reality that the cultural connections that are there despite the traditional differences there are cultural connections between you know unionists and catholics in derry are in thrown you know, they, they share the same ground okay. and they, they understand things similarly. Yeah. Um, I, whereas I, the union is the difference. I have to come in on that one because I'm, I'm unless they're wondering uh, what forms the attitudes of people so that it sometimes is reflected in their behaviour then. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm thinking of myself, you know, how the media impacts on my thought and my reflection on the very question we're, we're talking about here this morning, okay? And the responsibility of the media. Th- those questions don't get asked or answered. Well, I think that's such a critical question. And as part of this conversation, I think, like, RTE have, have had such a central presence in, mm. you know, Irish life. And, and particularly in, when we're looking at memory, right? Whether yeah. it's war of independence, there are periods that the formation uh, or the influence of a particular form, be it commemoration or uh, public memory or cinema or media, have different effects. So for your generation, for example, John, um, like RTE's presence throughout the 60s, for example, was really, really strong. And the 70s, it was really, really strong. And it was devoid of other noise as well. 
So it had the capacity, I believe, to, to, to make more of an influence on the consciousness and attitudes of people in Ireland at that time than if it started now, for example. So you have people then in, in your generation who's, in some, in some cases, their attitudes, political, their sentiments, otherwise... Um, were heavily influenced by the media narrative. And that might be subconsciously, because, I mean, if we take any, and there have been many studies of of media narratives, you know, you usually had a Republican negative uh, equation, you know, so with Section 31, you can give a more clear example of that. Um, that, that, That reinforces a negative attitude of the Black North, you know, and... That that doesn't do anything to help an understanding of what is the political milieu behind for our listeners. Section thirty one. Yeah, this is the 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 decision by the Irish government and implemented by RTE to deny the voices of Republicans to be broadcast on air. So you had a situation where Jerry Adams' voice would be uh, played over by an actor, for example. Um, and of course, I mean, I understand as well. Then when a state. Uh, you know, the Irish state finds itself, you know, in, in a situation like that, you know, they, they, I suppose, feel the need to react. And, and that has to be understood as well. You know, Even politically, that, there's an expectation, isn't there, down the line on that? Um, I mean, the, 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 the government of the day listen to the expression of the people, don't they? Yeah, yeah, well, and they, they that expression we're talking about is influenced by perhaps hugely by the form which the media presents its story. Absolutely, yeah. Would you agree uh, with that? Oh, I would. And, and I, I think we, we, we sometimes don't understand the level to which that can influence, you know, other political attitudes, decisions, voting, for yeah. example. You know, that can be hugely influenced because there can be such a difference between people's, you know, declared position yeah. and sometimes their understanding of that. Yes. And the declared yes. position might be sometimes a, a repetition or an echoing of, of, of what they've assimilated by yeah. almost osmosis through yeah. the media. Yeah. You, you mentioned there a while ago in relation to, uh, we'll say, nationalists and unionists, and while the union is the difference, there are so many things, cultural and economic and mm. otherwise, which draw people together. And I suppose the, the circumstances around Brexit have thrown that, in, you know, have brought a reaction reality to that where where let's say from an economic point of view uh the protocol can be seen as a very good thing yeah. uh that that it, it, it allows the six counties to remain in the single market or yeah. whatever but on the other hand it it um goes against their notion of the union yeah and it's there's a bit of a contradiction yes. there there is and i think that that's really important you know because there are unionist businessmen you know and women who are recognising the value of it and are, are operating on the basis of it and are benefiting from the new situation brought about by the protocol and ultimately Brexit. But then, as you say, the, the, the collision that that brings between the unionist identity um, and sense of themselves and I suppose in some ways what they feel as a fear you know, that the union is under threat. Mm. It's very, very real for them, you know, and that's, I suppose, something again about understanding you have to, like, I mightn't agree with it. I might say, well, look, it didn't ever mean much in the first place, but that doesn't mean anything to the person who's feeling it. Absolutely. And to, to, to unionist communities, particularly some unionist communities, that manifests in, 
you know, sometimes fairly irrational attitudes and, and behaviour, but it's it's born from something that's very real inside them. And I, I do know this, you know, that in the north of Ireland, and again, it's not, unfortunately, it's not portrayed at all in the media, that there is an awful lot of effort behind the scenes between Republican um, communities and activists and unionists to, to quietly, behind the scenes, have, you know, uh, coming together discussions to try and bring about more of an understanding. And of course, there are many other more public attempts, uh, uh, you know, in terms of, of education programs to bring people together. Um, and I, I think that has to continue. And there has to be some sense of, I use this word very carefully, but but I suppose momentum rather than force, I was going to say force, but momentum, because ultimately we know there is a benefit. We should know there's no danger to unionism in, in a united Ireland. You know, I don't think anybody here has any plans to cause any harm to unionists in, in this new united Ireland when it comes about. If it comes no, about. Getting, getting our own back kind of no, thing. No, and there never, there never was, and that, that never was a real um, threat. I mean, you have to accept that there, the, the unionists would feel uncomfortable with that prospect. But we know that's not true, you know, and we know that there is a better future out there. Like Michael Devitt knew it 140 years ago that unionists were, were, were losing as a result of the union, mm. you know, and he was able to get through to them on, on that basis. And I still think that remains the case. You know, you know so anyway. Jim, Jim, I'm conscious that, gee, uh, we had allowed a half an hour for this and, and we're getting very close to it and we were only beginning to scratch the, surf, yeah. the, the surface. We've got to show the, another side to actual, uh, our guest to say, Tomás McNamara, McConmara. And it's a way altogether from the world of, of uh, politics and, and, and it, it, it focuses on uh, the... How would I best put this? Over the last fortnight, there has been in the, in the media in County Clare an awful lot of uh, reference to prospecting licences. And it has successfully aroused uh, a, a public position on it, hasn't it? Yes. Don't touch Tulla or Don't touch, keep Tulla yeah. untouched, something and, like and, that. And the question of gold figures. Now, gold <laughs> can do strange things to the human condition, can't it? And it did in faecal. Mm. And you have the story of the gold hoard. Well, tell us about that, Tomás. Well, I'd gladly will because I, I came in here this morning full of energy. I said I wanted to talk about war. We're <laughs> 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 straight into it. But no, I, I, I've, I've been working on, um, on a book for, for, for a long time at this stage, and, and I'm not sure when I'll have it done. But it, I know that it's, it's called Behind the Windows of My Mind, and it's really an exploration of memory and the different people that I've encountered and and the fascinating stories. And one of those was Paddy Malley from up in Ireland, Fecal. And Paddy Malley, Paddy Malley, yeah, Paddy O'Malley, Paddy Malley. Like uh, people in Fecal would know him very, very well. Any of the hurlers now um, of or anybody playing against Fecal will notice a, a, a collar. Uh, the image of a collar on the crest of the faecal hurling jersey. That's right. Uh, and that is based on the gold collar that uh, Paddy, Paddy found in uh, March 1948 up in his home in, in uh, Gortine Ree, in the townland of Gortine Ree, in the, where his field was. Where would that be in relation to very the village close to Isle, uh, Very close to Isle. To uh, Isle. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, this would be known, I mean, in Fecal, very, very known that Paddy found this. Um, but what, what was significant for me was that 
I had met Paddy several times in Raheen Daycare Centre where I used to visit, visit older people, you know, a good few years ago. And uh, I, I subsequently recorded Paddy's story many times. And I know Paula Carroll from Scarif has also recorded Paddy. But what's really significant, you go up to the National Museum of Ireland now today and you visit the Ore exhibition. Mm-hmm. You'll see there the Gortine Re Gold colour uh, and the Gortine Re Gold hoard. And it is recognised as one of the most significant Bronze Age gold finds in Europe. Really? Yes. Where, uh, where is that now? Just to In the National Museum in, in Kildare Dublin, Street. In Kildare Street, yeah. exactly. It's a free museum, so anybody in Dublin, yeah. you know, pop in to see it. And it will tell you it was found in, in, in Fecal, County Clare. But I won't mention Paddy Malley. And I... I well, that is ultimately the question, and that's why I've written a chapter about, <clears throat> excuse me, about that experience and about what is lost when Paddy isn't part of that story, or, and when the artifact takes primacy over the story. Because when I interviewed Paddy, and he always started it the same way, old Mrs. O'Donnell. <laughs> and he'd tell us about old Mrs. O'Donnell when we were children, remembering Paddy was born in 1920. Old Mrs. O'Donnell used to tell us that there was gold buried between our house and your house, and there were three fields in that distance. And as Paddy said, sure, we paid no heed. <laughs> but in 1948, when Paddy was out clearing a field, amongst those three fields, as he said himself, up pops this colour of gold. And he found the Gertine Re gold collar and he went on to explain all of the different facets that add to the revelation, including the fact that Justice Gleeson, you know, who was an antiquarian yes. as well as a, a justice, came on behalf of the National Museum and, you know, established that, yes, it was a gold collar. Yes, it was significant. He also, you know, remembered that it didn't look like gold and that people came to the house to find to see it. And they were disappointed because they were expecting this shiny Listening, gold. Yeah. Yes. But um, ultimately, <clears throat> it made its way to the National Museum, but not before people had it around their necks at the Fair of Fecal. Uh, <laughs> are, you, are you serious? Yes, absolutely. And this is because I went to the National Museum as part of my research and I got the file associated with it and all the various letters yeah. between Justice Leeson and, and uh, the National Museum, uh, a keeper of the National Museum as well. But w- what is significant is that the the... Gold hoard that was found with Paddy, two bracelets, two gold rings, the collar, the most significant thing, and some other minor um, uh, pieces. That was at least uh, 2,500 years old. Okay. Now, old Mrs. O'Donnell, remember, said it's buried between our house and your house. Now, that could be just fortune, could be just luck, but we know that oral tradition gets stronger the further we go back. Is that right? Well, it must. because It's the only only form of knowledge, you know, in in many cases, particularly in in local communities. But we know it was undisturbed. So it was in the ground for 2,000 plus years Mm. before Paddy discovered it, which is remarkable in itself, you know, that somebody deposited it for whatever reason. And then 2,000 plus years later, Paddy Malley comes along as a 28-year-old and finds it. And what's really significant, um, there are so many elements to it, but unconscious of time, there was a debate subsequently around where it should be uh, kept because it went to the National Museum and some people were frustrated by that and there was a a debate that played out in the Clare Champion and one uh, writer who was calling himself Tunuk wrote, which I think was brilliant, was that (coughs) said, we, we, uh, excuse me, I'll go back to the previous page. So this, this material helps to illuminate the bare hills which yielded them. And he talked about the depositors, whoever they were, and he said, it does not matter whether there were two of the Don and Fearburgs or yet Dalcassians of their time. They were our forefathers. And we lift our head knowing that as we do, when the world was young, our ancestors were pioneers of progress and a cultivated artistic people as well. 
And I think just th that, that notion of recognizing a connection between the artifact and the people who deposited it is really important. And in my view, then, the connection of folk tradition between the people who deposited it and the people who found it as manifest in Nora O'Donnell's tradition. And I remember asking Paddy, and I'm so glad I did. I asked Paddy, you know, was Mrs. O'Donnell, um, who was his godmother, actually, was, was Nora O'Donnell alive when, when it was found by any chance? He God, she was. <laughs> and I said, did you tell her about it? I, I brought it up to her, he said. <laughs> and uh, he said, God, she was delighted because she had the right story, like. Yes, and, yes, and, yes. And, and I thought, if you can imagine the power of that moment, yeah. you know, old Mrs. O'Donnell dismissed, you know, these stories were dismissed. And then here's the physical artifact that testifies. She's to been proven right. Thousands of years of tradition. But um, it, but but what what for me, it, it, and there is a whole range of folklore um, around fecal, around Danish um, warriors chasing a man with gold and he buries the gold to try and get away from them to come back later. There's other tradition around uh, protectors of gold, a cat that blew up to the size of a bull and blew, um, blew flames out its nostril to protect <laughs> the gold. Yes. So there, there is gold is embedded in the folk tradition of, of, of the country, obviously, but certainly even in fecal as well, where it was found. But my point with all of this and with the, the chapter that will ultimately come out in the book is that for me, the gold has no value you know, without Paddy's story and, and everything that emanates from Paddy's story. It's just a yeah. piece of, uh, of metal, you know, it's an artefact. Yeah. And that really brings about the true value of the find, um, uh, you know, is when you include Paddy, include the story of Paddy and all of the other elements that come with it. Um, so that would be the ambition with that particular story. And it's for the people of East Clare, it's, yeah. it's, it's a hugely important find. Well, I'll tell you, we look forward to oh. it immensely. Oh, we... We've, uh, Tomas, we have got to revisit uh, and allow more time, yeah? Yes. Well, we, 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 we work on that, Jim. We will, and we'll invite you back again. Oh, well, I'll be back. I'll be very <laughs> happy. We never even got to mention the, the witch in, in Broadford. In Broadford, no. the Pitotile Wee. We'll, we'll come back to her. We'll come she, back to we'll her. She, I've always, um, Sean Crow told me that story often, and he said he'd always finish it because she, she reappeared every seven years, and he said, that seven years is coming up next week. <laughs> <laughs> Tomás 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 Tomás